Well, again, we're glad you're here. Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 14, if you will. Psalm 14. As we have been in the Psalms this summer, uh, studying different Psalms and genre of Psalms this summer, one of the things that we wanted to do is connect uh, our VBS to our greater emphasis on Sunday mornings in the Psalms. And since our VBS really was in large part out of the book of Romans, what we taught what we're going to see is that Psalm 14 is quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3. So that's the connection point. How can we make the connection uh, to the greater life of the church in one aspect of VBS? Uh, We're going to do that this morning. As you're turning to Psalm 14, I ask this question, do you ever wonder if people actually care what you have to say? Do you ever wonder if they're listening to you? So whether it's you picking up on nonverbal cues that... uh, give you reason to believe that the person you're trying to communicate really isn't paying attention, or whether it's you say something and then you realize that it kind of went in one ear and out the other. I think kids sometimes feel this way. You know, kids are excited to tell their parents something, they're excited to share some of their parents, but parents, we have this tendency to be so distracted. You know, we we get so busy with things that we kind of give our kids half-hearted attention. And kids, I just have to say this, every time that we do something like that, we're wrong. You deserve our attention. We want to give you our attention. So we're wrong. But it goes the same way, right? Like parents, we're trying to communicate to kids and there's distractions and there's other things. And how often do parents repeat themselves over and over again because we want kids to get it. We want people to get it. Now, frankly, repeating things is a, is a strategy whereby we are communicating what is important. And what we see in Scripture is that God uses repetition to drive home a point. God uses repetition to, uh, to emphasize things that are important. Now, when I say that, recognize this. Everything that God says is important, right? Everything He says, whether He says it once or multiple times, it is important. It is the Word of God. Uh, He's not using filler words like some of us as we type term papers and we just have to get to a certain word count. So we're just trying to, you know, get to that point. God doesn't do that. None of his words are throwaway words. They're all important. But in Scripture, when something is repeated, we need to take special note of that. We need to recognize that God is trying to communicate something to us through our hard heads and our stubborn hearts. And what we see is that in Psalm 14... And in Psalm 53, because these passages, these chapters are basically the same, just a few changes in words. Two times. And then in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is using the same psalm, quoting it again. God put this in the Bible three times. He wants us to understand our sin. He wants us to understand our need for grace our need for salvation. So let's look together in Psalm 14, if we will, stand as we honor the reading of God's Word, His perfect Word, the Word that gives life. Psalm chapter 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
They have, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Will you pray with me? Lord, we give ourselves to You. We give our attention to Your Word. We pray that You would speak to us. We pray that we would understand our need. And we pray that we would embrace the hope that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, let everything that is said even now be honoring to You and for the edification of Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. And you may be seated. Well, when it comes to this psalm, there is minor disagreement as to the type of psalm it is, as to the genre it is. We've seen many different genres of psalms this summer. We've seen psalms of confidence, hymns of praise. Uh, we're seeing hymns of trust or con- uh, confidence, as I said moments ago. And we're going to continue looking at psalms of repentance. And many would classify this as a psalm of personal lament. That is, there is a recognition of our sin, there is a, a, a confession of it in some sense, and then there is a prayer for, for hope, or a, a prayer for uh, salvation. Some would say this is just a, 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 a psalm that points to a wish for God's deliverance. And the author and the setting of the psalm have been a little bit tricky. You know, when you read some of these psalms, there is a subscript in Psalm 14, it says, to the choir master of David. Now, we need to understand that those are not in the originals. Those have been added later by scribes to help with an interpretation or help put the setting. Now, some would say, yeah, this is a psalm of David, and, and we should believe that and go with that. And then others would say, well, we're not completely sure when this would have happened in David's life. Others would argue that this is a, an exilic psalm. When Israel was in captivity to the, to the Babylonians or the Assyrians, and there was all sorts of difficulty and I think that's a better setting for this. We don't know for sure, friends. But I tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to get caught up trying to figure all that out. What we're going to do is focus on what we clearly know from this psalm. And I want us to see the assessment that matters. Because in this psalm, we have two assessments. We have the fool's assessment, the fool's view of life, and then we have God's assessment. We have the assessment that matters. We have what God says about humanity. So first, let's look at the fool's assessment. In verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Literally in the Hebrew, it's no God. The fool says in his heart, no God. Now, what does that mean? What is he getting at? The psalmist is describing someone who is living as a practical atheist. In other words, the way they live their life, they're living it as if there is no God. Such a person is Hebrew term Nabal, corrupt, foolish, perverse, wicked. John Calvin suggests that there is no stupidity so brutish than the forgetfulness of God. There is no stupidity so brutish 
as the forgetfulness of God. In other words, this isn't necessarily just a flat-out denial of God's existence, but it is a denial of God's relevance. The fool says in his heart, no God. doesn't matter how I live because God is irrelevant. Maybe there's a God out there, but He's confined to the heavens and He's not powerful enough to act for His own glory. Maybe there's a God out there, but it doesn't really matter because He's disengaged. He doesn't really care about sin. He doesn't really care about humanity. He doesn't really care about justice. He can't touch me. This is the fool that the psalmist is describing. Now, on a human level, don't we see this all the time when it comes to authority? Just turn on the news. And what you see is people living in utter disregard for authority. You see people living according to the desires of their own hearts without any concern about what the law is or what people might over them might be saying. You see this with this rationalization of sin or with this justification of acting and living unjustly. We see this with violence. We see this with people who maybe in protests or other things are shaking their fists at authority or pointing their fingers at the people who are in authority and they're standing right there in front of them as if they are irrelevant, as if they don't care. Now elsewhere in Scripture, elsewhere in the Psalms, the psalmist describes the fool as one who scoffs at the Lord who just mocks the Lord, who laughs at the Lord, who, who lives as though God has no authority, as if God is irrelevant, one who reviles the name of the Lord. This is a willful and an aggressive disregard for God's ways. Now this leads to a question. Why does Scripture call such a one a fool? What is it about this person that makes him or her a fool? And I think the answer is found in Romans chapter 1. So if you will, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're in the New Testament. You have Matthew, you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you have Acts, then you have the book of Romans. Romans uh, is a letter that Paul, the apostle, wrote to the church there in Rome. And I want us to see what the apostle Paul has to say about this idea of being a fool and what causes such a one to be a fool. And we're going to turn back to Psalm 14 in a minute, but keep your place in Romans if you can, because we're going to later turn to Romans chapter 3. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and a divine nature, have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their, here it is, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became Fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So what is Paul saying? Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving us a bigger picture here. He's saying that in light of creation, in light of what we see all around us, it is clear that there is a God. 
His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature are evident from the world that we see. He's saying we can't deny that there's a Creator because we just look around us and there is evidence everywhere. However, not everyone believes it. And what does Paul say? He says that in their unrighteousness, in their rebellion against God, what's taking place is that they are suppressing the truth. That is, there is a category of their understanding that has been darkened where they will not admit, they will not submit to the fact that there is a God. Why? Well, because... To believe or to admit that there is a God makes someone accountable. It means that no longer can I call my own shots. It means that I am not independent. It means that I don't have autonomy. It means that I will answer someone else. And it's no fun to live that way, right? Because in our sin, we want to be in charge. We want to be in control. So... Rather than submitting to what we understand by what we see in general revelation, we suppress it. We push it aside. And then we deal with the struggle that comes as a result of it. Now think about this. Why is that person a fool? If someone knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was no God, and then they said so, they would be correct. And they would be consistent. They'd be full of integrity. If someone isn't sure if there is a God or not, or they say they're not sure, and they admitted that, then at least they'd be honest. But if someone is convinced that there is no God, but there is a God, then they would just be flat out wrong. However, and this is a category that we need to see is going on here. For someone to know that there is a God, not saying you can understand fully who this God is, but you know what Paul says based on everything we see around us that there is a God and then to deny it and to live like there is no God, that is a fool. That is a fool. A fool is someone who keeps doing what they know to be wrong or keeps believing what they know to be incorrect, who keeps injuring himself or herself in the same way, who goes against what they know to be true. A fool is someone who ignores the signs. A fool is someone who will not listen to the diagnosis. A fool is someone who will not comply with the remedy. It's the person who has lung cancer but continues to smoke a pack a day. It's the person with heart disease who continues an unhealthy lifestyle and an unhealthy diet. Now, morally speaking, this person lives as if he or she is above and beyond accountability. And this really has nothing to do with sincerity or conviction. Right? Like, we can be sincere about something and be wrong. We can be, you know, convinced and be wrong. I mean, this person, the fool says, where? In his heart. In other words, it's a deep conviction in this person's heart. I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this. I believe this. And they're sincerely wrong. This is a fool. It doesn't matter the conviction. There's a sense where we know the truth. And we live opposed to the truth. 
Now, let's just take a, take a step back here because for some of this, all this talk about foolishness hits close to home, doesn't it? Fool is someone who keeps doing things that they know to be wrong. A fool is someone who injures himself or herself in the same way repeatedly or others repeatedly. So let's just take a step back for a minute. And we're going to see in a minute who the psalmist is ultimately talking about here. But let's just admit that even as Christians, we can be guilty of living like fools sometimes. We can be guilty of uh, foolishness at times. However, there's a difference between the foolishness in rejecting and denying God and the foolishness of a Christian who is struggling with sin. Right? There's not a There's not a believer in this room. There is not a follower of Christ in this room who doesn't battle sinful thoughts and sinful attitudes and sinful tendencies on a daily basis. Whatever those are, right? We can name them. Some of them. Gossip. Anger. Self-centeredness. Desire for autonomy. Lust. Impatience. None of us are exempt from these things. These are common struggles for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. But the difference, friends, the difference is Christians will recognize their sin and they will be uncomfortable with living in unrighteousness. As much as they battle, as, as difficult as it is, there will be an un, a discomfort there. Why? Because they love God. Because ultimately they love the things of God. Christians are not perfect people. No one in this room who claims to be a Christian is a perfect person. We all struggle with sin, but Christians do persevere in battling against sin. Now, hear me. I'm not trying to make light of sin. I'm not trying to say it's okay to sin. That's not what I'm saying. The call for the Christian is to turn from unrighteousness and to follow Jesus in everything. To follow Jesus in the path of holiness, the path of righteousness. And apathy towards righteousness is a dangerous thing. So... If you are here this morning as a professing Christian, but yet you live in disregard for righteousness, and you're apathetic about sinfulness, that's a problem, friends. Hear the warning and repent and turn to Christ and trust Him. Ask God to work in your life to change you. And here's the good news, friends. It is God's desire to change you. He's given you His Spirit so that He might change you. So that He might give you power in the battle of sin. He's broken the chains of sin. We don't have to live it any longer. Listen, we we struggle with it. We don't have to live it any longer. He wants to change us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And there's even more good news. Every time we fail, which, friends, for every one of us is daily, there's grace for that. There is forgiveness of sin for that. There is the blood of Jesus Christ that covers that. All of our sin, for those who are in Christ, washed away by the blood of Christ. Now, let's, take, let's go back to this fool and see what stands behind the assessment that he's making, right? Verse 2, such fools... Excuse me, the second part of verse 1. Such fools are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. 
There is a brokenness there. In fact, brokenness characterizes their lives. Their deeds are detestable. There is an utter disregard for righteousness. Isn't that the fundamental difference between the fool who rejects and denies God and the follower of Christ? Both will sin, friends. But the fool continues in rebellion and rejection of God, denying Him. The Christian sins, but detests his sin or her sin. And longs for righteousness. Christians desire righteousness because they have been changed. They have been made alive by the righteousness of Christ. So we see the fool's assessment, right? No God! doesn't matter how I live. I live for myself. No God. But now let's look at the assessment that matters. At God's assessment. So we look at verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. That, that the, the Hebrew verb there, to look down, it pictures someone on a, a second or story or higher opening a window and just kind of peering down to see what's below. Never, I'm not a big heights person, but I'll never forget when we were in Atlanta, Georgia, and we took the youth there. We were, I was a youth pastor in North Carolina. We took the youth down to Atlanta to go to the Six Flags there. And we spent some time, and some, some of us went to the Weston Peachtree Hotel. And if you've ever been to Atlanta, Georgia, you may have been on this, on this elevator. It's a 73-story building skyscraper with a glass enclosed elevator so you go up 73 stories to a restaurant up top and you see everything on your way up okay everything which someone who's scared of heights is not necessarily a good thing so you're going up and you're kind of peering when you get courage you know when you're not going like this you get you're peering down and you see a lot of stuff below but you don't see everything why well because the weather affects that the other buildings affect that Our own eyesight affects that. But guess what? God's in the heavens and he looks down and he sees everything. And he knows everything. And his assessment is perfect. He sees clearly he doesn't miss anything. He looks for those who fear him, who love him, who are seeking after him. And what is his conclusion? What is his assessment? Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. God's not a liar. He looks down and what he sees is brokenness. He looks down and what he sees is a battle with sinfulness, corruption, Now, specifically in the context of this psalm, I believe the psalmist has in mind the enemies of God's people, right? The enemies of God's people, they're corrupt, they do no good. Verse 4 and following, they have no knowledge, they oppress the innocent, they oppress uh, the righteous, they take advantage of the poor. Verse 4, they have no knowledge, they The idea of knowledge here has to do with perception and awareness. And taken with verse 2 when he speaks of seeing for understanding, we we understand it as those who have understanding and knowledge who act wisely. This is the one who is the contrast with the fool. The fool has knowledge but suppresses it and acts unwisely. They have no understanding of how to live. The one who has knowledge and lives according to that knowledge, this is the one who is wise. This is actionable knowledge, living in light of what we know to be true, 
It's connected to the fear of the Lord. That's why God says He looks down. He sees no one who fears Him. No one who lives with regard for Him. That's what Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. In other words, we live with this idea that we understand who God is. And because we understand with Him, that understand who He is, that affects how we live in light of Him. So when we fear the Lord, we begin to live as if He does care. As if what He says does matter. As He is relevant. As He is the most significant relevance in the entire world. But those outside a covenant relationship with God, they're fools. They live as if God is not there. They just don't care. So specifically, the psalmist has in mind the enemies of Israel. But we know that ultimately, this passage is referring to all humans in their natural, sinful state. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 3, if you will. Romans chapter 3. It's where the Apostle Paul, in the first several chapters of the book of Romans, is really making this case for how we... No, there's a God just from what we see, but we suppress that and we push it aside and then we are full of sin. We have broken God's law. So what does Paul write? Romans chapter 3, verse 9. He's now extending this foolishness beyond the enemies of God's people to all people in their natural state. Listen to what Paul writes. What then? Are we Jews any better off? That is, better off than everyone else because we have the law of God? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Why? As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then listen to the pervasiveness of sin that Paul is describing of all people in their natural condition apart from the grace of God. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So with every aspect of our being, Paul is saying we are perverse. We're corrupt. Verse 19. Now we know that Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what he's saying here is this. None of us, in our obedience to a law, will make ourselves right with God. We'll be justified before God. Why? Because none of us obey the law. Because we all sin. Because we all rebel against God. How can we make ourselves right with God if we don't obey God? We can't. There is a deficiency. We find that we are shut up under the law. We we have no defense. We stand guilty. The pervasiveness and the universality of sin is referred to by many theologians as total depravity. That is, we are infected with sin. And our sin has rendered us helpless before God. Spiritually dead. We can't relate to God based on our own goodness. We're spiritually dead. We're guilty. We're condemned. And we're not necessarily as bad as we could be, but every aspect of our being is infected with sin. 
our minds, our wills, our very natures. Now, some of us are going to object and we're going to say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I do a lot of good things for people. I serve in the church and I give some money to charities and I'm kind. And all my friends would say, look, I'm a great person. Uh, you know, they all like me a lot. And, you know, compared to so-and-so, I'm that much better. But what is Scripture telling us? What is God's assessment? God's assessment is that we're broken. God's assessment is that we don't obey the law. We're not good people because we don't obey the law. Think about it this way. Some of us do some good things, right? Some nice things for people, and that's wonderful. Let's say you were to bake an apple pie for somebody. Now, maybe that illustration sits well with you because you like to do that. Or maybe you just like to eat apple pies, okay? So you're going to do an apple pie. You're going to give an apple pie to someone, and someone's going to give you an apple pie. That's a good thing, right? It's a great thing. But the problem is all the apples that were used for that pie were rotten and had worms in them. You still hungry? That's kind of like our goodness. We can do some good things. But the problem is our hearts are broken. We're infected with sin. Our nature is sin. So everything that we do is tainted with self-love. Everything that we do or say is tainted with sin. The prophet Isaiah says that even our righteous deeds are like dirty rags before God. There's just utter brokenness. Humanity is in a desperate situation. Every good thing we do is infected with sin. And it's tainted with self-love and rebellion against God. And it's our self-love and our failure to love and obey God that makes us guilty before Him. Now, the psalmist refers in verse 5 to the terror that comes, or the terror that these fools experience. This is really a difficult passage to understand or translate. Some would say, well, they're really looking to the, to the end time and then there's final judgment, maybe. In Psalm 53, which is really the same psalm, he adds a qualifying statement here. It says, they, they live in terror, but there's nothing to be afraid of in that moment. In other words, there's nothing just, just pressing on them that should cause them to fear. So I might conclude then that this really is a guilty conscience, right? They understand that there is a brokenness, and they've done everything they can to push it aside, right? We live in a world that's full of distractions, right? Why would we ever have to think about our brokenness when we can just go buy something new, or we can just get involved with a different hobby, or we can just do something else that takes our minds off of our condition before God, of our spiritual state? We can all entertain ourselves. We can get involved with all sorts of things. But at the end of the day... This terror that we feel, it arises because we are guilty. We have a guilty conscience before God. We understand that there is something bigger. There is something greater. There is something more significant than us in life. And we understand in the darkness and the still of night that there is a brokenness within us. That we don't measure up. We're guilty. We're guilty. So what do we do? Well, some of us continue in that state, further rebelling against God, trying to satisfy themselves. Author of Ecclesiastes, the 
the king, the preacher, says, yeah, we just try to satisfy ourselves with everything else, but in the end, there's really no satisfaction. But what do we do? And what will you do? The psalmist cries out. The psalmist cries out for help. Recognizing that God is the refuge, that God is the place of safety, and he prays for salvation and restoration for God's people. That's what, end of verse 6 and verse 7. But the Lord is his refuge. On that salvation, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. And this is exactly what Paul is going to talk about in Romans. Romans chapter 3, he's telling us, look, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all guilty and condemned. Yes, we've fallen short, but there is hope. Salvation comes from God. It is a free gift. We are forgiven of our sin and saved by the Son of God, by Jesus, who lived a perfect life. The God who took on flesh, full of grace and truth. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, there is hope and life. Yes, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became man, who lived a perfect life, who the only one who is good, and then He died on a cross, a sinner's death, but not for his own sin, for your sin, for my sin. And then rose again on the third day. The Bible is telling us that there is life in him, through faith in him. Apart from him, there is eternal death. Eternal death experienced in what the Bible calls a lake of fire, a place called hell. Just punishment for our sin against an eternal and infinitely holy God. But there's life. It's a free gift. You can never earn it. You don't deserve it. But through faith, you can receive it. You can receive it. See, salvation did come out of Zion, the holy place, right? The holiest of places, the very presence of God. God Himself came down. He lived a perfect life. Romans 5, 8, the passage our kids quoted earlier, God shows His love for us in this, that we we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And the Bible says that if we will put our hope in Jesus Christ, if we will recognize who He is, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, if we will place our faith in him, then we will have eternal life. For those who will, re- who will um, believe the gospel, who will repent of their rejection of God, who will put their hope in Jesus Christ and call upon His name, there is life, there is hope, there is peace forever. So my question is this, where are you this morning? Not, I know you're here. Spiritually, where are you this morning? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you seeking to live for His glory? Then praise Him. And thank Him for His grace and His Spirit. Why? Because that's not your own doing. That's the Word, the Spirit, and the Word of God at work in your life. Are you a follower of Christ, but you find yourself struggling with sin? 
right? You find yourself even at times just dwelling in foolishness. Maybe even living as if God is irrelevant. Friend, confess your sin. Repent. Ask for grace to live according to His glory. Or maybe this morning you're recognizing your brokenness. You're recognizing your desperate need for a Savior. You're recognizing that you're full of sin. And that if you remain in your sin, that you will suffer eternally for your sin. But you're also understanding that God loves you. And that while you were still a sinner, helpless to relate to God, Jesus Christ died for your sin. Friend, if that's you, cry out to Him for forgiveness. Cry out to Him for mercy. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved today. In just a moment, I'm going to pray and then we'll transition to a time of response. Now, for many of us in this room, it's going to be appropriate for us just to worship God. To thank Him for His grace. To thank Him for His Spirit. To thank Him for His Word. To thank Him for making um, this assessment known to us and for saving us. For others, there may be some here who have questions about what it means to follow Christ. What it means to place your hope in Jesus Christ. Maybe you have questions about baptism or church membership or something else. I want you to know we're available. Uh, During this time, I'm going to be standing at the front. If you have a question, come talk to me or make yourself known. And at the conclusion of the service, we'd love to connect with you and talk to you. We'd love to walk with you down this road for a little while in order that God's Spirit might be at work confirming in you what He desires. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for your kindness and your grace. Thank you that though we are undeserving, that we could never earn salvation, you have graciously poured it out upon us in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for this week. Thank you for the truth that we're confirmed, that we're taught. Thank you for the lives that will be changed as a result of the gospel. Give us grace even now as we call out to you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we honor the Lord?